Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. with us as some of these questions we are seeing for the first time and trying to adjust on the fly. So I apologize to my colleagues if uh, you're being put on the spot and I apologize to those of you watching or listening for anything that isn't quite as smooth as you would normally expect from us. Kelsey, while you're doing that, um, there were a couple of questions in the queue about um, people who don't want to come back to work because of transit issues Yes, whether whether that is... uh, uh, something that an employer can dismiss uh, if employees refuse. So it's a, a bit of a tricky question because it's going to depend on the circumstances. Generally speaking, uh, how an employee gets to work is not an employer's concern. Uh, someone who chooses to take public transit uh, as opposed to other forms of uh, transportation, those are decisions that they make um, in most part for personal reasons. So I would say that unless the um, inability to attend at work or the the reason for taking public transit is related to some form of disability, Um, that the the mere fact that they don't want to be on public transit is not a sufficient reason not to be ending at work because they can can pursue alternatives. They could try carpooling if that's available. Um, They could bring their own vehicle in. They could be dropped off at work. Um, so we would say that, that the mode of transportation is not a health and safety issue in of itself. And so we would not be recommending that you involve the Ministry of Labor if someone's refusing to work on that basis. Um, but again, before you know, taking a, a difficult position in terms of a job abandonment, uh, we would encourage employers to try and, and uh, come creative solutions for people like that. Um, but it would not raise a specific health and safety concern. Unless again, for some reason, being on public transit is part of your your uh, your job. I'm trying to think of a a job that that would entail, other than being a transit driver. So, and and all the all the public transits, uh, all the municipalities are are doing their part uh, with their transit workers as well in terms of reducing the number of people that can be on the bus and how you get on the bus and whether you have to pay for bus services in a lot of municipalities. So. Um, yes, I, I, and I see Shauna there quick to point out that Brampton Transit, as are I think probably all of the transit operators, doing their best to protect their, their, the public, the riders, and, uh, and their employees, obviously. So yeah, I think you're right. Off. And, that's <laughs> off, Brampton Transit. <laughs> okay, so I've got some Q&A up here, and I figured out how to do it. So let's move into that uh, and thank you Susan for taking that one on because it was a question that uh, that we got so this one I can handle um, and I think we're going to learn more well I know we're going to learn an announcements coming out next week with respect to education schools and child care and when we're talking about PPE required in all emergency child care there's already is it a requirement when we reopen um, we're going to find out I, I can't see that it won't be to some extent. There are going to be protocols that, are, that will have to happen that are different from in you know, and, and that's going to be true of every sector. You think about food handling; that already is is really highly regulated, and so you know there aren't as many changes for some of those highly regulated, or it's easier to adapt. But I 
think we're all going to as employers, um, the new normal, right? And from a childcare perspective specifically, you know, we all know that the economy can't really get going until childcare get done because so many people are limited in what they can do, um, even working from home with kids, at least I say anecdotally. Um, so it's going to be important, but we're going to learn in Ontario at least uh, next week with some more. And I know there's already have been some guidelines put out with respect to uh, potential expectations. And I think the, the childcare sector is respond with what's reasonable and realistic to expect out of children. So that's kind of, it's a tough one to answer right now, but I, I can't see that it will be just business as usual anywhere. So the next slide then, take a minute to read it and see if any particular one of us want to tackle it. I can tackle this one, Kelsey. Thanks, Charles. Go ahead. So in this case, um, where you say you have generally granted any COVID-related leave of absence requests to but no firm date. So I believe those um, restrictions, it's like they can be tied to the length of the state of emergency or whatever. But in any event, um, what you have to look for is whether they continue to qualify under the legislation for the leave of absence because the way that it's drafted is that if you meet the requirements for eligibility you are entitled to the leave um, so what they i think they've tried to i don't want to speak for them is they tried to tie it to orders to shut down so if you can't be an op business can't be in operation then we have these leaves of absence to protect employees so that they can maintain their employment while they aren't able to work so um, you have to look at the specific leave that they're entitled to to see what it's limited by. But if, the if they fail to meet the eligibility requirements or the leave no longer applies because there's a shutdown of some order, uh, then you would have the right to call them back. What you'd want to do in that situation, and, and really any situation, I think a lot of the answers to a lot of these questions, because we don't, we don't have answers that we want, is really just try to be as reasonable as possible. You're going to make a decision that find yourself in front of an arbitrator or in front of an employment officer where you're trying to basically justify what it is that you've done. You want to be able to say that you've given lots of notice. So to the extent that you can give a week, week's notice that a leave absence is going to end, you should be trying to do that as much as possible. It may not always be um, possible, but the government's been pretty good about giving some time lag in the lead-up to announcements. So they'll make an announcement Monday for an opening on the following Monday. So as long as you're providing notice going back and make sure that they don't still qualify for the leave, despite the fact that you are opening, then you do have the right to recall them back. Another question I've been getting is some, you know, some employers, you know, employers trying to do the right thing. Sometimes they'll grant leave of absence just out of hand because employers got a, employees got a problem. So if you've granted a, a what I call a gratuitous leave of absence, it's not necessarily linked to um, something in the ESA and the employer didn't qualify for the ESA, same kind of consideration. You do have the right to call them back because the terms of the absence are basically dictated by the employer, but you want to get as much notice and that kind of thing and just make sure that whenever you're going to call people back to off the absence, you want to be as reasonable as possible. Thanks, Charles. Let's see what uh, what our next one is here. Uh, it's a couple, a couple interrelated ones. So uh, if an employee has traditionally worked a 35-hour week, but re upon reopening, is working reduced hours. If we ask them to work less and they refuse, what can the employer do? And you know, if we're not, uh, do we have to bring people back to their full salaries? Like these things are related and we have questions we certainly get all the time. Um, and this goes, you know, kind of to the the whole constructive dismissal aspect. And 
Susan, if you're comfortable with it, because uh, I know you addressed it briefly in terms of what we've learned um, from COVID-19. Uh, if you want to take this one, that'd be, that'd be great. And just kind of re-emphasize uh, what employers are facing. Oops. Uh, absolutely. Um, so you can bring people back to work on reduced hours um, as long as you don't trigger, as Kelsey said, a constructive dismissal. A constructive dismissal is a unilateral change to the terms and conditions of employment, to a fundamental term and condition of employment. Compensation is a fundamental term, um, and it has to be a significant uh, change. And so the courts, in normal times, the courts would say a 10 to 12% reduction in compensation will not trigger a constructive dismissal. Anything past that will. Um, so, you know, those are so sort of the guidelines that we use generally. I would say that during this time period, uh, given that the federal government has uh, created the wage subsidy, which is a 75% subsidy, um, that, you know, a 25% reduction would probably not trigger constructive dismissal, particularly if you were only bringing them back uh, at that reduced, on those reduced hours for a certain period of time. So again, it's, it's uh, gonna depend on uh, how much, how, like how many hours they're being reduced and for how long. And those, unfortunately, we can only deal with on a sort of case by case basis. Um, but no, you do not have to bring them back to their full-time hours. Uh, if you can't afford to, um, you just will have to be able to justify that you can't do so. So I think that answers both of those. It does, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Um, Next question then we have as a recall question. So probably me since I dealt with the recall. Uh, what happens if an employee wants to return but has childcare obligation and wants to work at odd hours? Uh, based on their duties, that won't work for the company. Um, and they're required to be in the office with respect to the um, you know the company's these operational needs, right? Do we have to? And so this you know, this really brings in a, a whole host of issues, not just, um, you know, the employer's right, but also going back to, if you recall, the last bullet point on my second slide about recall is how do I retain key employees? Well, if this is a key employee, um, you know, you've got to think about, okay, well, can we be flexible at all? If they've been on serve this whole time because they cannot work outside the office, then, then that's pretty clear that there may not be a lot of flexibility around that. Um, if you're asking though, do you have to recall them or, or is it legally or morally your duty to recall them so that they're freeloading on serve when they should otherwise be at work? Um, you know, that that's technically you probably, you know, from an employment perspective, you do what you need to do from an operational needs basis, right? And um, I think it's a, a consideration for everyone and, and probably a specific question to, to deal with with uh, um, accounting professionals. But I mean, for that employee, when receiving the CERB, they've got to um, you know, essentially say that they're entitled to it. They've got to attest to the fact that they haven't voluntarily quit um, you know, if they've got these childcare obligations, then their, their job's protected, right? Uh, 
at least in Ontario, under the uh, Employment Standards Amendments. If you're talking about trying to work something out, uh, you, know, you need to do it. There, there are a whole host of things that might come into this. Um, you know, if it's just that they don't want to come back and they want to work flexible hours and it doesn't work, then, then that's a different story. But if it is literally the childcare obligations that we talked about that, and I apologize for kind of skipping forward, but, um, you know, those in Ontario are, are a specific ground of, of protection, right? So like we said, if, if they don't figure out the childcare thing to, and a way to do it safely, then the economy is in general going to have a, a hard time ramping up to, to full um, capacity, uh, rapid rate. Susan, I think you wanted to interject there. Yeah, no, um, I just, I think, I think you're right, Kelsey, that, you know, you can't, you can't take a job abandonment position in these circumstances. Um, but as the employer, if the employee can't fulfill the essential duties of their position, um, and that's the position that they're hired for, um, then you don't have to bring them back uh, if you can't bring them back to doing what they were doing before. So based on their duties, if most of their duties have to be done in the office, then we would take the position that despite the childcare obligations, um, if they can't come back in, they can stay on serve, they can stay on their job protected leave, but the employer does not have a positive obligation to bring them back to something that looks totally different than what they had prior to going off on the leave. So I hope that answers the question. I don't think you have to accommodate them to the extent that you basically give them a different job. Um, that would not be uh, required under either human rights legislation or the Employment Standards Act. But there may be as well, you know, and we've had this situation in our own office, there may be other things that you can do on a temporary basis uh, to give them some relief from their childcare obligations. And we would also really be um, pursuing what in fact the obligations are. Is this a personal preference? Um, right now, obviously it's not because daycares are not open, but probing the employee as well uh, as to whether or not there are obligations or preferences uh, because those are treated very differently in terms of uh, your duty to accommodate. Yes, th thank you, Susan. A lot of nuances to that question, depending on where it's coming from and, and what the requirements are. Um, so the next one, employees are reluctant to return but don't fit any of the protected reasons, citing anxiety and fear. Rather than job abandonment or STD and LTD with doctor's notes, um, is that appropriate? Well, I mean, anytime there's medical information, right? I, I think um, you've got to act on that the way you normally would as a responsible employer, and that's finding out what uh, the restrictions are, what the prognosis is, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, and to the extent that you as the employer are willing to uh, accept those things at face value, which, and, and it's, this is not to say that that these things aren't valid, but it's also a balance of the competing interests of the operational needs and the, the medical needs and restrictions of, of employees. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't say that it's not appropriate, uh, which is a strange way of saying it, but uh, I think it's all going to depend on on what you're looking for and, and what the nature of that. You know, if you're asking whether you can challenge it, I think that'll depend on the specific circumstances. But I do think that if you, you know, if you have STD and LTD and, and they are other and they otherwise qualify for it, and hopefully you don't make those decisions, your insurer makes those, um, then I think it would be appropriate for them to go on short-term disability and long-term disability. I would not be 
I would not be claiming a job abandonment for these individuals if um, they would qualify for uh, other disability plans within the organization. Yeah, certainly. If, if they're if they're independently qualifying for those those specific plans, absolutely. I think you're right about that. I'm I'm thinking more in a general sense of, you know, the cynical uh, employer view of well, you can get a doctor's note for anything pretty easily these right, and then that's. What are you willing to live with? What do you want to see come out and, and what do you write? And that goes again back. So leaving aside the STD and LTD programs and, and actual qualification for you as an employer managing these things, it's it's what, you know, what serves your operational needs better. Um, forcing someone who doesn't want to be there to be there or working around them in another way or, or managing a, a gradual return so they can be more comfortable with this um, you know, quote-unquote, new normal. Uh, okay, so an employee is on sick leave due to injury outside of the workplace. They provide group counseling, and they've been temporarily replaced because that position wouldn't be able to do the group work. Uh, the union is saying we have to fill the position during the employee's sick leave, regardless of the fact that the job can't be done. Um, this one might be a little too specific. I see Charles has unmuted himself. What, uh, what are your thoughts here, Charles? Yeah, so these, one, these ones are tricky, um, basically anytime you have a union involved, because obviously there's going to be correct collective agreements that comes to bear on this. So, so really the answer is the wording of your collective agreement. But so leaving that aside, in general, I can say it would be kind of strange to force an employer to fill a role uh, where the work can be. That being said, because you have a collective agreement, it's going to be quite detailed, you may have to take some technical steps in order to avoid that. So some collective groups will say that any job vacancy has to be posted uh, for the bargaining but even some others will go further and say it has to be filled with those. But that's the case. You have to remember that unless there's clear language in the agreement, it's the employer who decides whether there's a vacancy or not. So in this case, if you had someone off on sick leave and pandemic hits, then that person's job is not able to do it. Then even if you had posted filled language, then you would say that uh, well, there is no vacancy because the work's not being done. You know, get in the language. The other thing you might have to do is, um, if you have post and fill, you might have to take the you know the official step, take the paper trail of eliminating the position. Um, although you'd have to again, you'd have to warn, you have to look at other language because that often consequences, notice consequences, or consequences for now. And then when things start to come, work does start to be getting done, then you would create the um, but. You know, all that comes with the caveat that you would need to look at all the language at play because, um, so I'm not suggesting that necessarily as a, a course of duty situation, um, but obviously if you wanted more detail about your specific situation, you'd be happy to take it offline, but in, in general, it'd be strange to have to fill a position where the work is not being done. It's just a matter of what the appropriate response is and if there are any techniques based on the yeah, so I think the short answer there is uh, give Charles a call and he can help you with that. Uh, okay, so let's see what uh, that may be the last one that we got to. It is. So uh, I saw one come in uh, at the end that's talking about a, uh, a, an employee who has been terminated, they, whose employment has been terminated. They were laid off, but they're not responding to any attempts to, to discuss um, 
obviously that brings with it some different considerations, but the specific question was about the statute of limitations. And Charles, I know you addressed earlier how all the adjudicative bodies are functioning or, or not during the time. What can you tell, uh, tell everybody about statute uh, of limitations and limitation periods? I'm sorry to put you on this. Yeah, no problem. So this, this goes back to what I talked about before, the order under the emergency spending limitation periods, time periods for any process of adjudicative bodies. So limitation periods, uh, remember I said that the time limits are up to the discretion of the body. The limitation periods, there is no So in general, and this applies to most disputes. So if you have an employment standards complaint that you may go through an officer, I think the limitation one year on that. So basically, if the dispute arises during, from March 16th of the state of emergency, then the limitation period is going to run from the end of the state of emergency as a date that the arose. Um, and the same thing for like a wrongful dismissal complaint, except the limitation period there is two years. So anything that happens if the complaint violation, whatever arises during the state of emergency, then you're basically just going to take the date that it happens really to the date that the citizen is lifted. And when you're also um, it's going to run from that date as opposed to the date. Excellent. So um, thank you, Charles. Thank you, Susan. And thank you most of all to all of you who have tuned in and joined us today. And uh, our numbers have dropped off as people needed to get things done. Uh, like me, this would be the time where normally my kids are clamoring for some food. So we get it, believe us. Um, but, you know, we had a an excellent discussion today. I appreciate all the questions and uh, really enjoy doing this with everyone and being able to share information and, and knowledge to the extent that we have it and uh, the general discussions are good to have. So just leaving you with uh, the last few thoughts. We've said, you know, it's all about asking questions when people are coming back to work and making sure that you as the employer are doing the right, um, the right things, right? Um, so you can demonstrate that have taken every step necessary to protect employees so that if they're not willing to come back, you, you know what to do next. Um, we will see things change, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months, if not days. But uh, in the meantime, stay tuned to our blog, our website, our Twitter account, all of those things where you can find the latest information. Uh, and feel free to contact anyone uh, of us directly or anybody else at CC Partners, we're here to help you. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that we're working remotely or po possibly because of the fact that we're working remotely, we are just as accessible or more accessible than we. Um, thank you, everyone, and uh, have a great day and enjoy your long weekends.